Welcome to Respeaks, hosted by yours truly, Rihanna Raymond Williams. This podcast aims to share a variety of stories and conversations discussing race, education, health, and so much more. Here I use my voice to create change in the hope that inspires you to do the same. Join me on this journey. As a young East Londoner in my early teens, grime music meant everything to me. Like many inner city young people of that era, I was consumed by the culture. I embraced the music and the artists and devoted hours of my day glued to radio sets and Channel U in an attempt to keep up with all the new music. In this episode, I speak with Dr Joy White, an author and lecturer from East London, who has devoted part of her academic career to researching grime music, effectively leading her to publish her second book in 2020, titled Terraformed Young Black Lives in the Inner City. Terraformed has been described as part ethnography, part memoir, contextualising the history of Newham and how young black lives are affected by racism, neoliberalism and austerity. In this conversation, we discuss the book Terraformed, the dynamics that sparked Joy's interest in grime and the impact of the genre both nationally and internationally. So can you start by introducing yourself to me, please? My name's Dr Joy White. I am a lecturer in applied social studies at the University of Bedfordshire. Um, I'm an author uh, and a researcher. Can you recall one of your favourite memories and tell me why it is a special memory for you? This is a really interesting question. I had to think about this one. Um, I, I've had many years on the planet, so um, many memories to choose from. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to go for a recent memory. And the recent memory is I took part in um, a face-to-face seminar in October. It was a seminar called Sisters in Struggle at the ICA. Mm. Um, and it was curated by Rihanna J. Parker. What made the memory um, so special was that it was the first seminar that I'd taken part in probably for a couple of years because we've had the pandemic in between. And the other thing that made it really special, it was a a panel of um, all black women. Mm -hmm. So there was Rita Gale, there was June Reed, um, who also um, runs a sound system called Singer Sounds. There was Dr. Lisa Amanda Palmer, who heads up the Stephen Lawrence Research Centre, and we um, and we had Diana, Dr. Diana Watt, and Professor Adele Jones talking about their experiences with the Abbasindi Cooperative, and to be in a space like that was so nourishing and so uplifting. It took away some of the not so good feelings about having to do everything online about not having that face-to-face interaction with your with your colleagues and the audience as well it was it was it it was it was a seminar um with a panel of speakers we all had an opportunity to present aspects of our work uh-huh. but the being in conversation with the audience as well as the other panel members just made it um very very rich i was thankful to to to, to be part of it so that that's a recent um, favourite memory. 
Mm, I thank you for sharing that with me. I think it's so beautiful and it's so it's so moving to hear you say that because I saw that event taking place and for whatever reasons in my life I wasn't able to attend but I so wanted to attend and I saw it on Twitter I saw lots of comments from my friends who did attend and it just felt like a really really beautiful space to be a part of but also particularly thinking about the years that we have had recently and also the experiences of black women in academia and in the struggle which is what we're essentially talking about um so yeah it just sounds amazing I'm really glad that you felt that when you was there and I guess we're going to kind of talk about some of those things as part of the conversation so thank you for sharing that so I think it's really great to speak with you this afternoon about your research particularly because grime as a genre has been such an influence on me growing up um, like many inner city young people who attempted to write and spit bars or imitated some of our favourite artists at the time as a young person. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit more about your work exploring grime in academic capacity? I suppose I would start by saying that grime is not my natural home when it comes to musical genres. Mm-hmm. I grew up with sound systems, dance hall, reggae, and just on the periphery of UK garage. So those 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 are my <laughs> those are my genres. Mm-hmm. And how I became interested in grime, um, I live in East London, I worked in East London, I had a business in East London, and I had a at the time, just before starting my, my PhD research, I had a 15-year-old, 15-year-old daughter, and and I've got nieces and nephews that were kind of all around a similar age. So Grime was the soundtrack to my life without me realising it. Mm. And the point at which I realised it was um, I had a business in Silvertown, which is in the south of the borough, if you know Newham. Mm -hmm. And Newham, like um, other boroughs, would um, place students that I suppose would have been in year 10. Well, they had to do a week of work experience in a business so that they could learn about the business environment. And we were part of a program we used to take young people and we got the young people that the schools said were not the high achievers. So these were the young people that they thought weren't going to get a 5A star to see, which was like the golden ticket to college. The school framed these young people as the ones that were at risk of becoming neat, not in education, employment or training. So that that was how they were presented to us. So we had this steady stream of young people that would come in and do their week's um, work experience. And if you know Newham at all, you know that it's very multicultural. Um, I think there's more than 100 languages that are spoken in, in the borough. And so these young people would come, would come in, not the slightest bit interested in the world of business. No one turned up with a pen. everyone turned up with um a phone that had the ringtones on so you're kind of getting the the Mm. kind of time frame now so people had the ringtones where you had to download the ringtone oh wow and they all had headphones Mm -hmm. and it didn't matter what cultural background these young people came from they were all listening to the same thing Mm. and so it didn't matter if they were east african west african um, of Caribbean heritage, it just didn't matter. Everyone was listening to this this same sound, and I, I think I kind of woke up at that point because this this music was if you got on a bus, 
you could hear people playing at the back of the bus. You walk down any street and people were playing it, listening to it in some form or another. And we had one young person who was um, with us for work experience and in the school asked if we could keep him for another week. You know, they said he was troublesome. They said they couldn't even get him to sit down. You know, so there was this kind of six foot one, 15 year old that came in and he was fine. You know, he wanted to update his MySpace. Again, using mm-hmm. his time context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'd kind of ask him what he was doing. What, you know, what, what are you updating? And he had, he had a fan base. He had mm. thousands of people. Um, and he was fine. The school said that he was, he was troublesome, but he was fine when he was with us. He'd come in, he got on with his work, came and got on with his work, and, and he was okay. And then one day, he was late. Like, he was late. Mm-hmm. And he kind of came in, he was a good hour late after his start time. I said, where have you been? And he said that he'd been on radio. He'd been on Radio 1 Extra. Mm. Oh, come on. But he was. He still had his badge. He'd been on the Westwood show. And then I got to talking to him and some of the other young people that came through. And like you said, they were spitting bars in the playground. They were writing lyrics in their, in their notebooks. And some of them had taken it further along in that they were making CDs. This is a very long-winded way of saying that I had this kind of penny-dropping moment that if there's one young man like this or two young young people like this, there are many, there are many young people where the authorities, the schools, the powers that be look at them and say, oh, they're failing. But actually, they're doing something quite amazing. I wanted to look at entrepreneurship and, I, and to look at entrepreneurship, I wanted to look at grime as a musical form and how that allowed people into this kind of entrepreneurial space. That was the start of my my work exploring grime in an academic capacity. The academy wasn't that welcoming in the beginning, if I'm honest. Um, My supervisor was very positive and very supportive, but there were questions about whether uh, grime um, was a suitable object of study for the academy. And people actually asked me that out loud. You know, do do you think this is a suitable subject for... Mm-hmm. academic inquiry but since then as you say the scholarship has grown I'd like to say and I think this is true that it's now it, that it's accepted as mm. um part of the kind of academic canon in in many places but not everywhere it's it's so interesting to hear you tell that story like you've told my childhood <laughs> you told my childhood in the sense that I was amongst and part of these young people and no friends around me who were going to studio after school and you know developing their myspace pages and creating cds and mixtapes to sell in stratford and in west london and just the very enterprising nature of that era that i was born into it almost felt like we were living very two different lives like we have the lives of going to schools as as students and then you have this other creative practice that lots of people are pursuing and they see role models who were the big musicians on stages, on radio, um, in Ayanapa at the time, like performing and, you know, doing amazing things and creating musical careers. And who doesn't want to do that? Who doesn't want to be on stage? Well, not everybody, but I guess as a young, energetic person, you want to be on stage. You want to be performing for your friends. You know, all your friends are doing the same things that you're doing. It's kind of like a subculture itself. It's really moving to hear how you've you've kind of seen that. And I think it's not the same as other people see it. They kind of see it as 
this thing that should be kept in the corner underground and nobody should know about it. Um, and I think I've lived, I've lived the lifetime of seeing how, how grime has gone from like this thing in like a corner to something that's so mainstream. And even that's been really interesting. Grime is something I listen to in my bedroom with my friends and at school. And now I can go to a rave and hear grime. I can go to a shop in like, I don't know, H&M and hear grime. You know, it's very much commonplace as part of our day-to-day lives. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about how much it wasn't received. I'm not surprised. Um, and what do you think has kind of pushed that to happen alongside people like yourself exploring in academic capacity? I think in general, that over time and for uh, financial and economic reasons, because grime was, grime was very successful and has been really successful at various mm-hmm. points. Um, there's an appetite for it that goes beyond its kind of initial um, origins, if you like. And um, at one point, I think there was a Ticketmaster study and grime artists and live grime events were kind of outselling pretty much everything else. I think this is by 2016. Mm. And so we arrive at a point where grime becomes pop, popular. It's, mm. it's, a, it's a, you know, and, you know, look how it is. You get a track like POW, Lethal V and POW, which was pretty much banned from radio, couldn't be played in the clubs <laughs> um, in 2000 and whatever, when it first mm. came out, because no, it encourages people to do whatever. Mm. And let's roll on to 2021. And that same track is the soundtrack for um, an ad, ad for an estate agent. Exactly. So yeah. the world moves on. And I think one of the things that Grime has done is evolved and grown and spread um, and that's, I think, as well, testament to the to the young people that that made it, that um, persisted, that kept going despite all of the um, despite all of the difficulties that were kind of weighed down on them. You know, all of the kind of the police activity, council activity, the regulating authorities that tried to, as you say, keep grime in a corner and not let it grow. With the advent of social media and um, the internet, those kinds of channels meant that it couldn't so easily be suppressed in a way that perhaps UK Garage had been. I think it speaks to the resilience and the creativity of those young people that thought, nah, we've we've made this and I want to get my music out there and making good use of these platforms to get get their music out there. And it's also interesting what you say about, you know, living those parallel lives because people were kind of operating in that space where the school is telling them one thing, which is you're not going to get it. You're not, you're not going to get anywhere. Or um, in order to get somewhere, you have to follow this route and do these mm. things. Mm. And at the same time, these same young people, I listened to, um, this was a couple of months ago, I watched an interview with DJ Mac 10 and Carnage, and they were talking about their early days on pirate radio um, and so on. And Mac 10 said that he was 15 and he had a radio show. He had a radio show, mm-hmm. uh, something like two o'clock in the morning, and he'd walk from Plasto to Shoreditch and he'd go to school the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, that speaks to a kind of, um, yeah, commitment, I think. Mm-hmm. That, Completely, yeah. That should be, that should be um, encouraged and welcomed and praised, you know, but because... 
the young people who were showing that um, resilience and commitment weren't seen as the typical entrepreneurs or the typical successful people. There was mm -hmm. a tendency, I think, especially in the early days, less so now, to write it off and say that somehow it didn't matter. But Grime does, uh, did have, does have a socio-economic and cultural significance that you can't ignore. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I did field research in Ayanapa for my point I was doing my PhD. Mm -hmm. um, because when I did the the interviews, for my um, my research method was ethnographic. So mm -hmm. when I did the um, interviews, the first set of interviews, um, Iron Apple was one of those places that people said that they wanted to go to, yep. to come back from. It sounded yeah. like a spot, and I thought, well, you know, if you're a researcher, you, you've got to go where the <laughs> you've got to go where the research is. So I, I went on a field trip. I went to the the beach parties, the phone parties, or wow. after party, the after after party, all in the name of research. But yeah. <laughs> It's such an important time and so culturally significant and I'm really glad that the people of that time partly like people like myself persisted and I remember there was times where people in my friendship circle would say oh why are you listening to that and now when I'm in the club with them when Gwam comes on I'm looking at them like oh this is the music that you said I shouldn't be listening to but now it's popular you want to listen to it um so I I still kind of feel that tension amongst some people they didn't there was almost as though it was a, it was seen in a particular way. And I also think that there's something in that about who was making the music. Um, you know, there's assumption, predominantly a lot of black young men were making grime, um, but lots of inner city, inner city young people are making grime. But I think it's the perception of what young black boys are in terms of being seen as dangerous, being seen as criminal, being seen as all these negative things. But I saw them as my peers, as my as my friends, as people I had fun with, and we were spitting lyrics together. All these kind of pastimes that were so enjoyable and fun. Just as Joy and I have spoken about already, grime was more than music. It was a culture within a culture that gave people an opportunity to have fun, make music, build careers, and create legacies. Here is a short clip from Frisco, the North London musician, taken from Channel 4's documentary From Pirate Radio to Mainstream, Grime Story. I just think that everything has its time. The stars align every every now and again. Grime wasn't meant to have had its time until now. Because I think if Grime had its time then, a lot of people still didn't understand even the British culture, like the way we speak, the way we dress, you know what I'm saying, the music we make. is one of the biggest musical creators in the world because we had Pirate Radio. Pirate Radio was like life. Ow. Pirate Radio, I just think there would be no grime. It's beef. What do you know about beef? 
seriously I was more on the road than anything and then I clashed Wiley and I thought right I'm gonna really put my all into the music Jamie Skep Maximum and Wiley just started Boy Better Know this has been like 2005 Skep and Jamie was like yo just come man and that's when I joined Boy Better Know Grime it means a way off the street a way to support your family a way to express yourself mainly more than anything expression Rooney, what's going on fam? How you, how you been bro, how you been? Yeah, not bad, not bad. Just had a little epiphany still and I, I, I want to draft you in on something. But I want to chat to you more. If you can link me, that would be good still. I heard you're driving taxis now, so I'm not sure if you're going to have time for little people like us in it. Ah, uh, see, boss. See, that's what I'm talking about. You're a boss out here. All right, cool. I'm, I'm going to text you the postcode, yeah? Yeah, risky roads. Squad in. Dizzy Ross, when you're watching Risky Roads. Risky. Yeah, this is Lethal Bizzle. This is Risky Roads DVD. Risky Roads 2. Risky Roads, Esky Boy. The roads are well risky, you know, fam. Thinking about your book, Terraformed, um, which I came across last year during the pandemic. Um, was it last year you created Terraformed? Or was it, it, this it was. T- time's taken a strange shape because of the pandemic, mm. but it was last year. Yeah. <laughs> so last year I, I came across your book. And as I mentioned, I grew up in Newham and could really relate to your reflections and insights on Newham as a borough, but also the wider context of how social, political and structural elements really shaped my peers and my own upbringing. Um, so for context, can you tell us a little bit more about the novel and what moved you to write uh, Terraformed? First thing I would say is that it's, rather than a novel, I would say it's it's an academic non-fiction text. It's an ethnographic text in that um, the research I carried out was a kind of street ethnography, so and as well as participant observation. So I kind of walked around, I took pictures. I um, I went to all of the locations that I talk about in the book. It's part memoir because there's some of my personal past story and my personal present story um, in there as well. And what prompted me to write it was I could see that the area had changed, but I didn't notice it because I live here. I didn't notice it fully because I live here. Very gradual, very gradual change. And then over time, I kind of noticed that you didn't hear certain voices anymore and you didn't see certain people anymore to the same extent. Also, at the same time, I was having conversations with the young people that were in my life in in some way or another who were really trying to understand how it was that even if you did the right thing, it was so difficult 
to live um, an independent adult life. And because these young people had grown up under 40 years of um, neoliberalism, what they saw as a lack of progress on their part was always in the way of, well, there must be something wrong with me or I must be doing something wrong. And what they didn't have at their fingertips was a kind of understanding of the systemic, structural, historical and contemporary issues, kind of untangle some of these things about why some um, people were not making the progress that they could or they should. You know, this is a very unequal society and in unequal societies, you do get these kind of um, challenges. And, but at the same time, it's an unequal society, but it's also a very rich one. How it presents itself is, you know, there's, there's no money to do this and there's no money to do that. And we are, you know, we're very, you know, light on resources. The motivation for the book was to not, not, not to give the answers because I don't have the answers, but the, the motivation for the book was to lay out um, and just kind of pattern what some of the issues were and how those pieces fitted together. So that people could have a starting point to make sense of their own surroundings. Even reflecting on Nyomazabara, you know, we had the Olympics in 2012, and I think even prior to the Olympics, and in during the Olymp- prior to the Olympics, during the Olympics, and after the Olympics, there is an illusion, or I believe there's an illusion of progress and positive change. But I've seen how much communities have been displaced in my borough. Prior to the Olympics, a lot of my friends were moved out of the borough to accommodate the kind of gentrification that was taking place. Mm. Um, So, so many changes. And I think it's a really rich, I guess, reflection on the changes over the last years and really reflecting on which communities have been impacted by these changes. With um, gentrification, for example, um, it's always presented as a good and positive thing. And... That's true. That's that's true in many ways. If you're one of the people that's on um, on the receiving end of it in a positive mm. way, mm. Um, however, there are costs to those that can't keep up in terms of salaries, in terms of housing. So, for example, the average wage, average take home pay in Newham, um, when I was doing the research for the book, was twelve hundred pounds. The average take home pay. Mm-hmm. Um, the average rent for a one-bedroom flat was £1,200. <laughs> Immediately, you can see there's a disconnect. Something doesn't work. Something's not working. Um, and for poor, poorer and um, economically disadvantaged communities, they were at, at the brunt of all of this. And when you start to layer in factors to do with race and ethnicity, then what you get is a picture that is really quite challenging. And I wanted to just try and lay out some of some of that and some of those challenges and, and put them in context because um, we didn't arrive at this point in the last two years. Um, over time, historically, over the last four decades, at least, measures, policies have been put in place that enable us to get to this point one of the things the pandemic did was just reveal reveal those cracks and those those um, deep inequalities in a more visible 
and high profile way. And that's what I was trying to do um, with Terraformed was to try and write these stories in a way that would support people to make sense of of their lives and also to try and go some way to explain to people who don't live those lives mm. that this is how it works, you know? This is, this is how it works. On a day-to-day, on an everyday level, this is how it works and this is what it looks like and this is what it feels like to be a young black adult in these places in this time. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think in particular, when I was reading your book, there's something that you make reference to quite a lot. And I think the terminology is sonic backdrop. Is that the right? Yeah. right for, yeah, it's a sonic backdrop. And I think I've never, I've never heard those words together. But as soon as you said it, it really made me reflect on what that means for me living, growing, working in Newham. And just think about all the sounds that I used to hear, I no longer hear. And that's also part of the changes in the environment that I'm living in and the fact that some voices have been removed, some voices are being excluded. And that's all part of the design, the design of making a space more comfortable for some people more than others. When I read that, I thought, wow, I've never really thought of that. Um, You know, you go into particular shops and you hear certain sounds or certain voices and certain languages. All of these things are part of I guess the communities that I grow I grew up in and then you go there now and that no longer exists there's a whole range of different voices and different accents and different music which relates to the people who now have kind of taken over mm-hmm. um can you kind of speak to that in terms of what you were trying to I guess reflect in terms of the sonic backdrop particularly in relation to grime and the kind of communities of people creating grime um as an enterprising resource, I guess, for loads of people at the time? I suppose that, you know, for for me, um, Newham, Newham was, was, is part of Grimes' origin story, if you like, an East London sound that spread throughout London, the UK, and, and, and beyond Europe, mm-hmm. North America, and so on. And so... When we do think about that sonic landscape, how how would a sound like grime emerge from Newham now? And I don't think it could. And partly because the places for young people to gather are no longer there in the same way. You know, that kind of gathering on street corners or in the stairwell, the youth centres have gone. Where do people go? And even the level of noise um, or sound or the type of sound that that is allowed to be made in those places is monitored and controlled. So it was a um, an interesting, um, yeah, I was, I was, uh, yeah, it was an inter- it was an interesting um, and quite sad observation for me as well that mm. you know that here is a place that out of all of that um, adversity, young young people managed to make a sound and make a music, make music that not only mattered to them, but resonated with people around the world. You know, Grime shook up the world. Mm. It really did. And, and yet 
in the place and the places where it's from, it's difficult for the young people that make it to continue to make mm. make that sound. And I think it speaks to questions well of what has value, what is permitted. Um, I, I listened to somebody speak, I think it was Roger Robinson, and he was talking about those changes um, to do with gentrification. He was talking about South London. And he said something quite interesting about the sound of building, building work, scaffolding going up, the cement mixer going, because one of the things that um, that people do when they move is they want to develop their property. Those sounds are acceptable. Those sounds are acceptable, the banging, the drilling, the whir of the cement mixer. What's less acceptable is the sound of somebody spitting some lyrics. Mm. Talking on a street corner, talking mm-hmm. on a street corner, less mm-hmm. acceptable. So as somebody who is dyslexic, it's mm. difficult for me to engage in written works for anything that is anything longer than four to five pages. I'm really thankful that you've created an audiobook along with the physical book of Terraformed. But as someone who's also interested in reading and storytelling, I've rarely found work that relates to my lived experiences. Um, so what has it been what has been the reception of Terraform so far? And is there anything new you've learned in the process of publishing your work that you were not aware of before? Thank you for that comment about having it available in um in an audible form as well. That was quite important to me to have the work available in that way. The other thing, um, in, in terms of accessibility, which is very important to me, is the cost. One of the things about academic publishing is how expensive the books are. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted a book that was around about £10 and no more, mm-hmm. um, because £10 is affordable, and if a person can't afford it, somebody else can afford it for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want people locked out of the words because of finance. Um, I didn't want people locked out of the words because it was difficult for them to, for whatever reason, to read the words on a page mm-hmm. and what has been so what has been so so amazing and so surprising for me is how the book has been taken up in all sorts of ways and in, and in, and in places that I didn't expect it was quite a risky endeavor it was quite a risky book to write and there's a moment when you send it off <laughs> to the publisher or the editor and you think and yeah but so it was quite a risky endeavor. It's it's um, it's been taken up by um, sociology, um, geography, criminology. There was a secondary school in Newham that were using it with their year tens and their year elevens. Mm. Um, it's been used for geography to decolonize the geography cu- curriculum um, as well. Geography A level. I wasn't expecting any of that, to be honest. I just wanted to make work that made sense, that made sense to me and hopefully um, enabled other people to make sense of their lives. Um, and so I've been, I've been really blown away by um, how it's been received. Uh, from time to time, um, I'll come, up, come across the occasional comment on social media. And it's, yeah, it's just, it's just re- really good to see how people have ju- just find things in there that they can use, that they can, um, 
they can um, speak to that you know enables them to articulate particular positions as well and that it's being read by people that wouldn't usually pick up an academic text. And just kind of thinking about the observations you spoke about earlier on, um, when you spoke about kind of immersing yourself in the environment, so going to INFA and other observations, what was that like for you? I guess, you know, you spoke about having a 15-year-old daughter at the time, but also having nieces and nephews and pit, I guess, young people that you were working with in your business and just that you probably knew in the community. What was it like to kind of immerse yourself in that environment in a way you was kind of like an outsider, but then on the peripherals of being an insider because this is linked to your exploration? Mm. Yeah, and, 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 and you're right. So even though I was in that world because I live, I lived, um, live in the, in the area, I'm outside of it because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a musician. I don't make any music. I'm older as well. So I wasn't, um, for the most part, I wasn't the same. I was much older than the people I was interviewing and inter- interacting with. Coming into those, those spaces, for me, it was always about being respectful about the work, being respectful about the work that people were doing and how they were doing it, not looking at, looking at what they were doing as if it was some kind of um, exhibit or some, you know, out there objects, you know, these, these were people that were, they were working, you know, it, and even if the, the kind of usual suspects, if you like, were looking at what um, these young people were doing and, and thinking it, it was of no consequence, it was important to recognise the value of what they were doing and the, and the work and the effort that went into it um, to make it happen. Um, being open-minded enough to park my um, assumptions at the door and just try and see see things for what they were. And so then being able to recognise that even though grime might look like it's highly individualised because it's, 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 the, it's the MC, it's the one MC that's at the front um, talking about how great they are usually, but actually... <laughs> There's a whole level of collaboration and collaborative work that goes on in terms of sharing resources, sharing beats, putting putting your resources together to, to make the music happen. It was important for me to just kind of, yeah, make sure that that was documented in, a, in an honest way to really get people to kind of try and understand the significance of what was going on here. It, 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 it wasn't just, you know, young people turning up and rolling out a few rhymes or a few bars it was it was so much more than that um as an outsider as you say as someone that was on the periphery as someone that wasn't part of that scene in any way I had to blend myself in as best I could just thinking about that I know during kind of the interviews and the observations were the people you were speaking to receptive of the work that you were doing and were they I don't know if they were thinking about the kind of impact grime was having or is having and has had on the cultural landscape currently yeah I mean back then I started my first interviews in 2007 so back then I don't think that there were that many people that realized 
the impact of what they were doing. They they just they just wanted wanted to make music. Um, I interviewed one person, and he said, "I just wanted to make music. Everything else is a bonus." And the bonus that he was talking about was the kind of the business side, um, mm. the events that he put on, the merchandise that he sold. He was able to make a living from um, the music the music that was his passion. And so, with hindsight, looking back, maybe maybe it would be good to take take some moments um, to reflect, especially from the young people who have grown up in the scene and who are still performing or working in some way 15, 20 years on. Um, it would be interesting to hear what their um, perspectives were looking back. And... Um, I, I read an interview with Kano a couple of, um, last year, I think he'd been given an award for something. And he said that, you know, we, we were just, we were just kids having fun. We didn't mm. know that it, it was going to be this. And I think, I think those things are quite important, you know, that we need to hold those spaces so that young people, whoever they are, whatever their background can have fun. And do these things that might not be to our taste, that might not be what we want to do or listen to. Mm. But if we don't hold those spaces open for young people to do those things in their way, then we lock off the potential for that um, innovation, creativity. I think you're so right. And it's really interesting to really reflect on it because... I was I was I grew up around loads of wicked MCs like they were writing some real serious lyrics and because of the way in which they were writing lyrics it wasn't received as like typical English or traditional ways of writing creatively mm-hmm. um but they would be you know writers of our time you know they were writing about their world and their experiences and using metaphors and similes and all these you know linguistic techniques and I just think because of the perceptions of their bodies and, you know, thinking about the intersections of class and race and um, identity, all these things don't suggest that they will be successful. What they're doing will be successful, which is really painful to actually think about. Mm. Um, and it just means that their their talent and their gift isn't supported. It's not encouraged. They don't, they're not encouraged to kind of flourish in the way that they are developing their lyrics or, you know, making the beats on the computer or designing the merchandise. All of these are really, really important skills. But I guess in the traditional sense of what, what success looks like and what it means to be successful, yeah, they're just not accepted. Um, but it's great to see people have continued and have been able to be successful uh, within grime and the culture and can stand testament today as role models and people who were celebrated for their um, entrepreneurship and a dedication to to the genre, I guess. Yeah, ab- absolutely. They, they set out a roadmap. They, they laid out a template um, and it's there for people to follow. Don't want to spoil the book for anyone who hasn't read it yet. Uh, but I felt that during the process of me reading, um, death and loss were really strong themes that came through for me throughout the book. Um, you make reference to gentrification, youth violence and migration and grief. So what was your process of constructing the book and what messages were you trying to convey? 
I think the main message, one of the main messages that I was trying to convey was that in this inner city unequal life, young people are working through living with, burdened by, weighed down by um, grief and loss with very little support. And so I wanted to kind of move beyond the superficial headlines of youth violence, for example, as a term. Mm-hmm. And just look behind that headline and really start to think about well, what 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 does that what does that mean for the people who have to who have to live with actual violence, but also the symbolic and structural violence of being in this place at at, at this time. Um, and I suppose somewhere in there, there's a kind of there's a plea for, you know, um, putting in that work and that support because it's it's important. It's so it's so important. We've we've got a whole um, we've got communities and generations of young people that are just kind of working through all of these thoughts and feelings with nowhere for it to go. And when I wrote the book, we weren't in a pandemic, but now we are. So okay. now, um, layered on top of that. We have isolation and lack of face-to-face contact and so on. And it's 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 a scenario um, that we need to consider, that we need to put some thought to, and we need to put resources into, you know. Um, emotional well-being and mental health is 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 important. It's important, um, not just for now, but for for, for later on as well. Um, but really um, I would say that the main message, although it, I think it comes across, is one of hope. Mm. Is one of hope, not not a kind of you know, let's just hope for a better better world, but a kind of active and practical hope, not just for now but for the future as well. And to be um, looking at what previous generations have done in the past to deal with these challenges and struggles that they faced. And what people are doing, young people are doing now to create those communities that are nourishing and um, and caring um, to try and take care of each other and to put those two generations in conversation with each other. So we don't have to do it all. We don't have to do it all from scratch because the blueprint is there already. Um, we can we can build on that. So the message or a message in the book was was a message of hope um because despite everything despite all of all of the issues um that i raise um in in terraformed people go on they go on and they find ways of being being in community with, with each other being there for each other online and in real life um and it, it you know it happens and it might not happen in a way that those of us who are not part of those groups, we we, we might not recognise it as such, but it's out there, and it that you know that what that work is being done, and I think we owe it to our young people. They just they they deserve more than this. They really do. You know what what there is is not enough, and there's no reason why there shouldn't be enough because the resources are there. It, it's it's an act of political will about how you choose 
to distribute those resources. It is there is supposed to be a message of hope in there that we we do know what to do and it doesn't have to be this way. There are some things in life we can't control that can have a big impact on how we feel, think and behave. When this happens, it's easy to feel a range of emotions that may be negative, such as stress, confusion, upset or hurt. Even in these moments, recognising what we feel can be helpful. The first step in dealing with negative emotions is recognising they exist. Here is a short clip from the charity Mind that explains what mental health is and how it can affect us. It also encourages us to access help and support when and if we need it. We're Mind, the mental health charity. We're here to make sure everybody with a mental health problem has somewhere to turn for advice and support. In the past, people thought if you had a mental health problem, you would never feel better. You might meet people who still feel this. Maybe you feel this way about yourself. Mental health is just like physical health. Everybody has it and needs to look after it. You have good mental health if you're able to think, feel, and react in the ways that you need and want. You might need support with your mental health if you are finding the way you're thinking, feeling, or reacting is more difficult or even impossible to cope with. This might be because of things that are happening in your life right now. A traumatic event may affect your mental health in a big way too, even years later. We are all different. Everybody experiences a huge variety of feelings, thoughts and emotions as part of their normal life. But how and when we have them can be really different depending on who we are. Some of us can find these harder to cope with. This can be because of our upbringing and childhood, past experiences or the things happening in our lives right now. That's why it's important that only you, someone who knows you really well, or someone who is qualified, gets to say when you need help. If your feelings, thoughts and reactions are getting in the way of how you want to live, if you feel things aren't right, if you feel like you need help, you can ask for it. We're not going to pretend it's easy. Mental health problems can change your life and for some they can be overwhelming. But that's why Mind is here. We're going to face it with you. We'll listen, give support and fight your corner. To find out more, visit mind.org.uk. You speak about a term called hyperlocal de- demarcation in your book, mm-hmm. um, which was really interesting and inspiring. I guess the fact that we as academics can create theories and concepts and describe our lived reality, which is essentially an element of the PhD, which is encouraging us to develop new knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, so, can you explain the meaning of hyperlocal demarcation and how we as practitioners or mm-hmm. academics can begin to utilize the terminology in our work? Well, when I was doing the research, um, for the book, when I was thinking about what I was thinking about, um, I read various um, theoretical perspectives to do with urban marginality, to do with um, this kind of disciplining of, of architectural space and physical space, and it and all of it was useful. So the work of Paul Gilroy, Loic Wacom, Michel Foucault, it was all useful. But I I just needed a little bit. I needed something more to try and explain what I thought I was trying to explain. 
And so the hyperlocal demarcation is to look for me in the book was to look at a square mile, a square mile. And I was kind of playing on this idea of Newham is five miles from the city of London. The city of London is a square mile. It's so within that five miles, you get great wealth and um, poverty as well. So I wanted to look at a square mile, but focus on particular factors. So I looked at legislation, I looked at town planning, communities, and the sonic landscape, and how those things, how those factors come together to shape and impact um, young black lives in that square mile. And I suppose that as a framework, it could be used in other areas, other geographical areas, with those components, but all of the components together um, are important. I needed all of those to be able to critically think about and analyse what I thought was going on that was beyond this idea that, oh, it's gentrified now um, and some people, are, some people are rich and some people are poor. It needed more investigation and more analysis than that. Um, and so that's, that, that's what I came, came up with. And I think it works. It works. It works for Terraformed. Uh, and I have seen people use it in other places as well to look at, particularly gentrification. So alongside being a published author, you're also a lecturer within academia. Can you talk about what you teach and how you became a lecturer? I'm a lecturer in applied social studies. Uh, I teach mainly on the health and social care degree at the University of Bedfordshire, um, but I do teach some criminology as well. Um, my, I'm a late life academic, so I came very late. I had a, a long career in other areas, mainly health and social care, which is why I teach on the health and social care degree. Um, before being at Bedfordshire, I, I, I did hourly paid lecturing once i finished my phd i did hourly paid lecturing visiting lecturer at a number of universities and then for the last uh three years i think i've i've, I've been there the journey from from phd into academia is challenging for for, for, for many people it's a tough landscape and I can, i've come into academia towards the end of my working life so I have a very, a different view on what it is and how it is. And from what I understand, you work inside and outside of academia. How does this work for you? And can you talk about some of the work, some of your work in both spaces? Um, mainly, um, I'm a researcher as well, so I, I write research about music, but not in not in the way of the music itself, but music in the way of, you know, the, the people that make it. So I look at um, inequality, I look at race and ethnicity, I look at health and well-being, those, those kinds of things, around the per- periphery of some criminological aspects as well, although that's not, not really my area of expertise. I think my work is very interdisciplinary. I don't, I don't have a home. I've um, badged myself as a sociologist um, recently. That works for me. Outside of academia, 
I'm the chair of a, a an organisation called Your Life More Life, which is a um, youth empowerment organisation in Newham. So set up by young people that want to bring change to the borough. They want to make Newham a better place. They're um, focused on um, on equality and social justice. And so, as a chair, I suppose my role has been to just you know work with them to steer the organisation the way in the way that they want it to go. I was saying before about um, active hope, and that's part of the active hope for me. You know, we can't just hope for a better, better world. We have to do something as well. What you do depends on who you are, what you have around you, what your what your skill set, what your life experience is. And this is an organisation that um, I can I connect with it. I connect with what they're, what they're trying to do. They're young and. I didn't have the level of understanding and awareness and knowledge that these young people have when I was their age. Um, and that's that's really powerful and affirming. And I want to support them. Yeah. So that's, that's what I do. Mm-hmm. And what advice would you give to prospective students who want to pursue an academic career? I would say when you choose your phd research choose something that interests you and choose something that you love because what will keep you going um when it gets when you get into some of those bumps some of those trenches because it does happen it's a long process isn't it um and it's a long piece of work um your passion and love for the subject the topic the area of research is what will carry you through and lastly what are you looking forward to over the next few months i am co i've been co-editing a special issue of popular music journal um a special issue on policing and prosecuting rap with professor ethnie quinn and professor john street um i'm looking forward to seeing the articles in their finished um, finished state, and I'm looking forward to the journal being published next year. Um, I've got a long, uh, long journal article that I'm about to start work on, so I'm in the process of um, thinking about what shape that might take as well. So I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to both of those things. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you for inviting me. We got here in the end. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Respeaks. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you did, join me again soon. The sound design and production of this episode is by Veronique Belinda. <laughs>